This is No Politics at the Dinner Table. I'm Tony Biancasino. And I'm Amit Prakash. Today we have on a very special guest, um, one of my dear friends, um, one of my original bosses in the television business, a mentor, a friend. Um, and he is, in terms of television, as big a producer that has ever walked the face of the earth, um, who wants to be a millionaire in this country, his show. Uh, but um, he also has a highly successful soccer podcast, Men in Blazers. Um, he is a unbelievable guy, and we are excited to have him to talk about this Super League thing that Ama and I know nothing about. Yeah, it's going to be interesting to for us to be going there just blank. So I can't wait to hear. Let's go. Okay, so our guest today is uh, Michael Davies. Michael, I don't even know how I would tee you up because you have a pretty impressive resume. Obviously, you're on here as the co-host of Men and Blazers, uh, a tremendously popular soccer podcast or football podcast, depending on what you call it. But um, how else would you describe your yourself? Producer extraordinaire? Uh, your mentor? Your hero? <laughs> my mentor? <laughs> your man my crush? Hero, my I man crush. <laughs> How else? <laughs> your sharer of secrets? Your... I mean, I did meet Michael when I was in my early 20s uh, as a PA on a show called Chain Reaction. Oh, my God. That was the show? That was the show. I was actually working so funny. I don't remember Sony. you working on that show. I remember your sister working on the show. I don't remember you. Well, I'll tell you how what happened. I worked for Stephanie Masarski at Sony. Uh-huh. And they gave me to you guys. So I didn't okay. really work for you, but I yeah. did. And I worked for Maggie and Volpe and that whole crew. That whole team. Oh, yeah. my word. And funny enough, Amit here, actually years later, and I'll let Amit tell you about his background, but he was a fact checker on a Bible show you were, you oh, were developing. Oh, the National Bible Quiz or whatever yes, it was. Yes, yeah. exactly. Exactly. Yeah. There was somebody from the... American Theological Society and and me who were looking at pronunciations oh and things like that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It sounds like I've only made game shows and I'm highly, highly Christian. Uh, which is, <laughs> neither of those things are true. Right. So, <laughs> surprise. That's what it's about today. That's so good. Um. Yeah. So Ahmed, you know, Ahmed's a historian. Uh. You know, my brother-in-law. I'm, I've known Ahmed since I'm in seventh grade. Yeah. Uh, so we're family. Um, we started doing this podcast a few years back. We, uh, you know, Ama and I would get together. We drink and we. Talk we used politics. to live two blocks from each other in Brooklyn. Oh, so yes. once a week, we would just hang out, and then we basically just started hitting record and eating food and talking politics. And okay. Yeah. So it's yeah. this is politics. Okay. Now this is good. See, I, yeah. I looked at some <laughs> of the. I didn't listen to any episodes, Tony. I'm sorry. Sure. No, I will don't. do this after. But. No, no. Uh, I did see some of the titles of the podcast, and I immediately occurred to me, why on earth would I be coming on this podcast? <laughs> because I have, um, I have very little interest in American politics, other than to congratulate you all on your independence, and right. you seem to be seems to be going wonderfully, and your democracy, your constitution, just well it's done, endless. well yes. done, really, <laughs> bravo. Great job. Yeah, Great job, great job, especially over the last few years. I think you're really, you're really getting there. We're peaking. We're peaking. Yeah, I mean, peaking. the truth truth be told, after the last, not the last election, but the one previously, we um, we quit the podcast. We were just like, okay, this isn't fun anymore. 
It's not fun. So we're just we tapped out, and then as the, it would have been a weekly diary of trauma. You know? <laughs> I, I mean, that's it. that's it. And then when the next election was uh, gearing up, we decided to get back in the ring. So here we you are. are I'll, t- I'll give you the football translation of that, and this yeah, will please. occur to maybe uh, three people who are listening to this who understand <laughs> a football soccer analogy. Is you are the Tottenham fans of podcasting because you only sing when you're winning. There's yes. a very big uh, chant in soccer, which is the yeah. opposing team sing. You only sing when you're winning. You only sing <laughs> when you're winning. When you're losing, it, it, there's nothing to sing about. Yeah, nothing. No, we, that sounds like Philly fans. Actually, that sounds like Philadelphia. Well, fans. well I would say that <laughs> which, Premier League, which we are. <laughs> I would say Premier League soccer, or you know, even European football, is basically all Eagles fans for every team. Imagine that every team has Eagles fans who are even more violent, even more unreasonable, <laughs> and uh, even more cursed, even more convinced that they're great people when they win, awful people when they lose. <laughs> but the only thing they've got is that they are so much better than anybody else from any other city who supports any other club. Yeah. That is that is every that is the whole of football. Yeah, okay. yeah. That's, that's kind of like, as a Philly fan, we... I'm embarrassed, but secretly very proud of Philly fans. Like, you know, we will win a Super Bowl and two years later, fire the coach. Uh, we will tur- we'll have a quarterback or whoever that's that's sacrificed their body for years. They go to another team. They show up. We hate them. And it's like, yeah. I like that about yeah. football. Yeah, you're proving that's everything about Premier League soccer. And I'm sure we're going to talk about later, you know, even to the point that our group of Philadelphia Eagles teams just got together and decided to completely, completely blow up the league and the <laughs> entire pyramid of world football, which they all exist in just because they could. You know, that was the that was uh, that was that whole thing. I got to tell you, as as uh, as Philadelphia people. Yeah. Um, and Tony, you're more Jersey than you are. Pennsylvania, but I don't know if you saw Nick Kroll's Instagram this week. Nick Kroll did a whole thing about the Pennsylvanians' influence on the Kroll Show, no, I and played a series of sketches uh, where people were just nailing the Pennsylvania accent, both the Pittsburgh and the Philadelphia accent, and it was just so brilliant. As someone who spent some time in that part of the world, it's the worst accent in America. (laughs) (laughs) I have no problem saying that, and most of my family. yeah, it's like oh. from Liverpool. It came from Liv- it was almost like a Liverpudlian from Liverpool, where they say, I "Call you on the phone, phone," right. and they have that same thing. Went to Philadelphia for some reason. There must have been just a bunch of Liverpudlian Irishmen who settled they just Philadelphia really liked at some point. The Beatles there or something. Yeah, they did yeah. exactly, exactly. Um, okay, so here's what I want to get into. Amit and I, each week, we come up with different topics, and I read the New York Times piece on the Super League. Yeah, it was good. It was great. But as someone that does not watch soccer, I still had no idea what the big commotion was. So I called Amit, who has a little more historical background on things, and he <laughs> said, I have no idea. I read it, and I still don't know what's going on. So could you give us the uh, dumbed-down version of what, what's going on? Yeah, okay, Michael, just, just, just hypothetically, imagine you're speaking to some, just purely hypothetically, <laughs> Children. imagine you're speaking to somebody <laughs> Who knows nothing about even the Premier League, let alone this soon-to-come Super League, uh, and what the politics in between might be? So, uh, as someone who spends most of my time uh, talking about football using Harry Potter analogies, I can do this. <laughs> Perfect, great. Um, but I have to. Um, I I have to. That that always um, when I do that, I'm 
pretty much always assuming that people understand both football and Harry Potter so they work. I, I, I sort of feel like you're familiar with the, the general oeuvre of the of the Harry Potter universe, but I'm going to have to like fill in some gaps in your football knowledge. Great. So, and being American sports fans, I can at least use American sports and, and, and compare. So the thing, the biggest thing to understand about soccer, about football, and you know, soccer mm -hmm. is called soccer in America because it's the SOC in association football. That is the, that is the kind of, that is the, that is the code of football that we're playing, association football, is that the Football Association, which came into being in the 19th century, you know, just think, sports, pretty much, you'll appreciate this, Armit. Sports didn't really exist until the Victorians. The only sports that existed were sports on horseback. They were played by gentlemen. They were hunting, falconry, horse racing, polo. But very few games played by infantry regiments, men on foot, the peasants that the, the cavalry regiments looked down upon were played. And soccer came to being because it was a game, and it was sneeringly called football by the upper classes looking down from their horses looking at a game played by men on feet as they would kick around a pig's bladder between village and village um you know on the moors and fens and and heaths of uh of, of britain but the football association came into being and like victorians who started museums who built the classification system for plants and all diseases and insects and animals they also codified the rules of this football, this, this, this strange game played by the working classes. And they formed themselves into association of all clubs. And any club who wanted to play football in any way, in any town, with your printing factory, if you're the old boys of some elite boarding school, it didn't matter. Or if you were a bunch of people who worked in the same factory, you joined up to the football association and you became part of this overall pyramid. So there were leagues that were organized. So there were the top leagues and the next leagues and the next leagues. And all around the country, you had regional leagues that then grew into national leagues. And this started to happen simultaneously. Britain's greatest export ever, even better than the Spice Girls. And they <laughs> exported this concept all around the world. So football didn't grow up in a franchise system of professional leagues. It grew up in this pyramid of all people playing a sport and obviously over time they became professionals who went into this sport it was very controversial because amateurism was seen as being the high ideal but all teams that play football around the globe are tied into their regional their local national football associations then when fifa came along this incredible organization the federation international you know um the football and blah 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 and whatever they uh, they organized into global regions of UEFA, which is the European region, CONCACAF, which is the bizarre North American and Caribbean Federation. Um, there's an Oceanic Federation. There's an African Federation. There's a uh, South American Federation, Commebol. So the whole of football is arranged in almost like a series of clubs. It's almost like the way that, you know, the, probably at the universities you attended, there, was, there were various clubs, but they all belonged to some... Oh, that's my Google Assistant talking to me. But there were a bunch of, um, you know, there was probably an overall organization in your university that organized all the clubs. It was about, it wasn't about professionalism. It was about this sort of amateur organization of organizing clubs. And that, when people talk about the global pyramid of football or the European pyramid of football or the British pyramid of football, English pyramid of football, because it's separate from Scotland, is... There is a, a general belief that in the pyramid, the biggest teams support the littlest teams. 
that is a sort of, I don't think it's a socialist view. I think it's almost like this was the free market within which football came of being, and it's very tied to its past. But there is a general attitude, therefore, that the biggest clubs in English football or European football, so whether you're Manchester City or Liverpool or Real Madrid, you sit at the top of a pyramid, and part of your charter, part of your responsibility, is to take care of the tiniest little clubs at the bottom of the football pyramid. So You're, you're not the, just part of a league like the NFL where there are 32 teams that are in this closed shop. You, you part, and the revenues flow down in the competitions you play in. The revenues flow down from the biggest clubs to the smallest clubs all the way through. Could you just speak about where that sort of sense of you know, noblesse oblige comes from? Why, why would it be incumbent upon a very wealthy, powerful, um, and perhaps in skill level better club to quote unquote take care of the other clubs? Why, why, why would that be a, a duty? Well, noblesse oblige is, so, uh, is such an interesting concept because of course that was founded by the aristocracy to sort of, in some ways, to enslave the, uh, the working classes. You know, they wanted people to play. You know, they wanted right. to have a system in which they could play people. And the early days of the FA Cup, the Football Association Cup, were really about the old boys of Eton ending up challenging people who played in the factory teams of, of, of cotton mills in the north of England owned by their parents. You know, it was a, it was a, there was a very interesting, but it did, for whatever reason it came about, there was a sense of, that it was that everybody was supporting everybody else. Some of that all happened within the context of amateurism as well. You know, we tend to think of amateur as being this great thing. You know, amateurism has for years been something that has protected, you know, those who could afford to spend their entire time training for sport over people who wanted to make a living out of it. And I think we still see echoes of that in terms of college basketball today that, that um, there is this fear, oh, they must be amateurs, they cannot be paid. But, you know, the people on the whole screaming that don't have the same problems that the people who are, you know, supporting these massive budgets for these for these institutions and having their likeness rights abused. So um, I think there is there is definitely a sort of a patrician part of that in the in the nicest sense. There's maybe something a little bit darker above that. But the whole of sports, you know, the development of sport has not been untied to the idea of social mobility and movement and you know, the protection of various classes and their vested interests. You know, sport is just a reflection overall in the same way that art and, and um, you know, books and literature and f films represent the time. Sport has definitely represented, you know, all of that change as well. Yeah, I mean, there's that famous quote by uh, Bertolt Brecht uh, that um, art is not a mirror, art is a hammer, right? <laughs> right, so that you can you can you can make the world anew. And yeah. I'm wondering if that if that's what this super like why people are so angry uh, with the super league is that rather than being a reflection right of of the society, or perhaps it is um, that there is such a high level of financial dominance and and um, a feeling of being sort of unmoored and freed uh, by that financial independence that you can just kind of do what you want and social obligations norms uh be damned and they're they're sort of smashing up the place so that's Ahmed's shot at the nfl right there <laughs> well i mean look here's so to sort of go and sort of extend the education a little bit further so over time the you know football which you know i always laugh when people think you know oh yeah I, you know people in hollywood particularly have these enormous tv shows that they work on and how powerful they are 
television would not exist without football. I mean without soccer and without American football. It just wouldn't exist because the highest rated, I think, in, uh, in 2020 of the 100 top programs on American television, 98 of them were NFL games. And not by like just a little bit, by a massive amount, football dominated American television. I think only the Academy Awards and maybe one episode of This Is Us got anywhere near the, the, the top 100 in, 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 in shows. And by the way, around the world, it's even more pronounced that soccer dominates from a ratings and eyeballs point of view versus anything, anything, anything else. And obviously, as the television rights became, you know, more you know, uh, valuable. And there was no football on television. When I was a kid in the 1970s, there was one FA Cup final and a couple of international games were on television. Everything else, they because they owners at that point who were local, you know, if you were a Liverpool guy owned Liverpool, a, a, a you know, a guy from London or West London owned Chelsea. It was everything, football was very local. They wanted to make sure that people were paying to go into the into the grounds so they weren't, putting anything on television there wasn't even radio it was just like you just had no coverage i i would watch the news at night and at the end of the news they would just literally read the scores we had no highlights we had we had nothing when i first came to america and i saw the george michael sports machine it was the most mind-blowing <laughs> advance it was like i was on a a different planet with this alien life form who would show me sports highlights and squirrels water skiing it was the most exciting thing i'd ever seen in my life so with TV rights and the advent of the Premier League, the Premier League was only formed in 1992. Before that, it was called the First Division, but it became the Premier League. These clubs went into the Premier League, and it was really about selling the TV rights. And very quickly, there became dominant teams in the Premier League as opposed to non-dominant teams. There are teams that owners had more money. There wasn't a complete revenue share like there was in, um, in, in the NFL and American sports. There was a, a revenue share of TV revenues, but the TV revenues weren't as big as the the gates, the you know, the the, the the selling of tickets, the selling of shirts, etc. And over time, you emerge with a big six. And those big six, the two Manchesters, Manchester United, Manchester City, Liverpool, Tottenham, Arsenal, and Chelsea in London, three London teams. And by and large, there have been some exceptions, but by and large, those have been the teams that have won the Premier League. Manchester United have won the Premier League more than anybody else. Manchester City and, and Arsenal won it a bunch and then they sort of went down in more recent years we've seen Chelsea and Manchester City emerge as great teams uh, Tottenham never won the Premier League Liverpool only won their first Premier League title last year but they've always been in and around the discussion qualifying for Europe because if you do really well in the Premier League, Premier League the top teams qualify for this huge European competition called the Champions League which is worth even more money and so over time these TV rights for the domestic competition, the Premier League, the TV rights for the Champions League have just exploded. This is all separate from the World Cup, which is where you, these players play for their national teams. This is just club soccer, which is really where the money is. So over time, these teams became very valuable and very rich people started buying the teams. Liverpool was bought by the Fenway Sports Group, same group that owned the Boston Red Sox. You know, I think LeBron James is part of that ownership group as well. But it's really, it's John Henry from the Boston Red Sox bought that team, Fenway Sports Group. They bought it for a bargain a few years ago, and now it's worth billions of dollars. Uh, Manchester United, which is partly on the stock exchange, but it's the majority of the shares are owned by the Glazer family, the Glazers who own the Tampa Bay Bucks. Um, the Manchester City was uh, bought by Sovereign Wealth from the Middle East. It's oil money, owns... Mm -hmm 
owns uh, owns Manchester City. Chelsea were born by the Russian oligarch, uh, bought by the Russian oligarch uh, Roman Abramovich, at the around 2003, absolutely transformed uh, that football club. Um, uh, Arsenal are owned by Stan Kroenke, the same man that moved the St. Louis Rams, you know, from St. Louis to L.A., uh, you know, his his sports group. I think they've been, if you speak to American sports fans who've who've supported teams in any of the Kroenke regions, right. they would sort of, like, they can't stand this man because of his, his, his abuse of the fans. And Tottenham also um, are a, a public company. Um, their majority owner, their chairman, uh, Dan Levy, you know, known as one of the shrewdest businessmen, not a billionaire, but Tottenham, all they've built a new stadium that the NFL are going to go and play in, in in London. They've got a lot of money, um, not maybe quite as much as the others, but they've got a lot of money. And, you know, there started to be tensions over the last few years within the Premier League of these teams wanted, because they say we have the biggest ratings, they wanted a bigger share of the TV money. They said, we'll, we'll, we'll split the British money, but the global money... We want a bigger share because globally, these six brands are massive. I see Arsenal, because I'm aware of it, I see Arsenal shirts and Liverpool shirts, Chelsea shirts, Man United shirts, wherever I go in America, wherever I go in the world. I never used to see this in the 1990s when I first moved here. It's just become this. And so I think a lot of the pressures, a lot of what led to the Super League is that the local fans... The Liverpool fans who go to the cop, that's the main stand that they at, at one end of the field, which is where the hardcore Liverpool fans go, or the Arsenal fans who like are from the projects around Arsenal in North London, literally within sort of less than a mile of the Tottenham ground, the old Tottenham ground, the two old grounds were so close to each other. You know, there was this rivalry within local projects, within local housing estates of where these fans are from. The Chelsea fans from, even though West London is seen as being quite posh, you know, most of the Chelsea fans are from the projects around around the around Chelsea, around Fulham, around around that area, around the uh, North End Road. And you know, similarly, it's the same in Manchester. These these two clubs very close to each other. Um, so there became a tension between the local fans wanting their clubs to remain local, and the idea that they were going on preseason tours of of of, of Thailand or. Japan or the United States and selling out to pack stadiums of fans and it's a lot of this is about local fans losing their own power of their own clubs where these were becoming global entities driven by global rights rather than local however the flip side which is why all fans are sort of guilty of what happened is we nevertheless loved seeing our oligarchs or billionaires or hedge fund billionaires or you know uh, oil barons, we loved them buying the most expensive and glamorous players in the world and paying them half a million pounds per week, often like $750,000, $800,000 salaries per Jesus week Christ. to come and play in these leagues, which, by the way, the local fans in Liverpool or Arsenal or could never have afforded. But it's a so we like the globalization on the one hand, but it terrified us that people were just going to start leaving the league and leave the football pyramid. So what became behind the Super League announcement, the Super League announcement was the top six teams in Britain. And there, it's more complicated than this, but to make it simple, the top six teams in England, the six aforementioned super clubs, Real Madrid, Barcelona and Atletico Madrid from Spain, who are very, very powerful clubs, have great players, great histories, but their domestic league, La Liga, doesn't make anywhere near as much money as the Premier League. So they need Champions League that they need European money. 
the top teams in Italy, uh, uh, Juventus, AC Milan, um, sort of got together to announce that they're forming a Super League because they want guaranteed qualification into elite European competition against each other. Because in Champions League, only the top four teams make it out of England, less than the top four teams, only the top three teams in Spain. Um, in Italy, I think it's only maybe the top two or three teams make it into the Champions League. And not only are they competing, the math of six into four doesn't go, but there are also other upstart teams. This season, Leicester and West Ham have both been in the top four for a lot of the season. These are smaller clubs who the big six don't want to see taking their money away. So these billionaires and oligarchs, they like, the math doesn't work. We don't want to have to qualify for this European competition when we, frankly, are the reason that the Premier League is so big around the world. We want to form our own, want to form our own league. Now, I have to say, the business logic is completely and utterly sound on one hand. On, before you deal with fans and the market and the audience, the business logic was sound. They were going to form, instead of qualifying to play in the Champions League, they were going to say, look, we'll leave that to you. We'll stay competing in our domestic league, in the Premier League. But midweek, so we'll do that at weekends. Midweek, we want to build our own competition with just the biggest clubs in Europe, and we want to play against them. And that was what the Super League announcement was. Um, really the brainchild of the president of Real Madrid. And he got everybody else in. And it happened so quickly. They must have uh, hired research groups and PR firms who just completely and utterly bolstered it up. And frankly, I think the billionaires were so concerned about the revenue that they could make out of this and guaranteeing their revenue and the value of their clubs if they ever want to sell them that they signed on and paid an enormous amount to go and sign on. And there are going to be tremendous lawsuits now that this whole thing has fallen apart. That was last Sunday night. Wow. Last Sunday, this happened. And uh, 48 hours later, um, it all collapsed because these billionaires did what nobody thought was possible, which is they united fans, <laughs> the media, governments, governing bodies i mean uefa and fifa these are evil people we're talking right. about like evil they aren't like the good guys in this scenario right this is the ministry of magic during its dark years guys this was these these are bad people but the the the, the these billionaire muggles they just destroyed that they united a world of people who cannot stand each other including fans of opposing clubs who were like showing solidarnosht with each other you know thinking that this was all you know that they had to unite and go and do it and within 48 hours because of fan power and media power and and the actions of governments and governing bodies all working in unison in this world of social media where it just moved so quick the whole thing was collapsed each of the super league teams now apparently owes 130 million for oh pulling God. out of the super league there are going to be massive lawsuits about the whole thing and i'm not sure that the premier league is um, or the FA Cup or La Liga. I just don't know what's going to happen. These, the world of football needs these top clubs so badly because they do sell out. They're, they're the reason that people go through the doors. But at the same time, they're tarnished forever because everybody knows that they don't really want to be there. Mm. It's just, it's just, it's just difficult. Where, it's where like the Potter the... universe without Harry, Hermione and Ron. It you know, it. Can it really work? No, no probably not. Where were the players with all of this? Were they silent weren't until? They weren't consulted, and immediately, I think initially they were shocked. Uh, they were told by FIFA and UEFA that they would 
be prevented from playing for their national teams if they ever kicked a ball in the Super League. Some of them were told that they couldn't play starting immediately, even though they never signed contracts to play in the Super League. Wow. And um, they were furious about it. And several of the players who have been, I must say, there's a, there's a Manchester United forward, Marcus Rashford, um, who has been incredibly uh, forceful and really changed the, the, the UK government's track on providing uh, school meals for uh, school meals for all children during COVID. I mean, a lot of, and with, with racism in football as well, a lot of the players over the last two years, it's been really impressive, have been at the forefront of social change in Britain. It's been, it's been really something to watch when footballers haven't really been part of this in the past. They've right. really come forward. And they came forward pretty much and within very somewhat coded messages. So they were not, you know, so that their paychecks weren't stopped. But within, but they came out pretty hard. It was very clear that they didn't want it to happen as did the coaches of the teams as did as did the you know everybody except for the referees pretty much made a um you know made a uh, made made a big stand and it collapsed so quick and look the way i've explained it to several people is market forces created it so market forces were this is what the billionaires and oligarchs said we want guaranteed revenue because we're the people who are who are creating this market but we can't then create this market and then not have guaranteed access to this market um and that the math just doesn't work for us so market forces created it but market forces also killed it market forces when they do work in their purest and and best sense which is when the people when the fans and the fifth estate the media plus government's elected officials plus governing bodies who are there one hopes for the good of the game acted together to go and kill the interests of a few and so i think a lot of people especially american sports uh a lot of people in american sports media have done quite a lot of finger wagging to do towards the structure and explaining why this could never happen with the nfl or major league baseball or the nba <clears throat> but that's not necessarily such a good thing that it could never happen because these are closed shops there's no access to you know, Major League Baseball has controlled its lower tees, its double A, its, its, its single A, its double A, its triple A game. There's no way for an independent to work its way into that market. Similar for the NFL, it's a closed shop. You know, we've seen NBA teams leave Seattle, go to um, Oklahoma. We've seen, um, you know, baseball teams just disappear from the places they've played. We've seen the same thing in Major League Soccer in America. We've seen NFL teams move and, and do that. And really, there was fan reaction, but nothing... I don't think any move that any owner ever wanted to make has ever been stopped in American sport. There's probably an exception, but on the whole, I would say as a, as a generalization from my observation, <clears throat> these owners are, they're like medieval barons. They can do whatever they want within the clothes shop of the NFL. So in terms of the, the, these owners facing this revolt, right? That yeah. this sort of weird um, solidarity <laughs> that sort of materialized, I'm still struggling to understand why they were worried that a midweek game would somehow dilute the authenticity of their team. I, I still don't quite understand. You know, yeah, but no, because good question. you know, because it's like actually you're getting more games or something. You know, I mean, and and then high level of play or you know, I, I know there might be an argument that you know the top teams might by virtue of automatically qualifying maybe the level of play won't be that great because they know they're going to qualify but 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 just having more soccer of your own team playing why is that a problem 
because the whole of football is based on also a concept that doesn't exist in except in the far reaches of American sport is it's based on promotion and relegation. It's based on it is a competitive league that doesn't just set up a league in order to qualify for playoffs at the end of the season. Promotion and relegation means that in the Premier League every season, if you finish in the bottom three, it's not like, oh, you get the number one draft pick. If you finish in the bottom three of the, of the Premier League, you are relegated to go and play in the championship, which is minor league, essentially minor league football, still professional football, but it's minor leagues, where the TV revenues are worth a fraction of what it's worth. And literally, we see clubs go out of business, literally go into administration at the point that they are relegated at the end of the season. So these are the stakes in every single game. When you're watching, you know, Burnley play Sheffield, you're watching these teams literally fighting for their survival in front of their fans who want to go and continue to see them every weekend. And at the top end of the league, it is qualification for the elite teams in Europe, which gives teams like West Ham, Everton, Leicester, Wolverhampton, who are clubs who are in sort of the the, the, the sort of upper mid-range of teams, Crystal Palace, it gives them a chance to compete to just try and see if they can unseat the big guys and take them into Europe. So the domestic league relies at both ends on this sort of idea of success of qualifying for Champions League or going down. Now, one assumes that the Champions League would still exist, but at the point the Champions League does not have the champions of the of their domestic leagues, it is completely devalued. And the whole air, I guess it's almost the air goes out of the balloon, Amit, is what I'd say. The air goes out of the balloon and there is no, the whole competition is what keeps it alive. Mm -hmm. And I compared it to, you know, when I walk into the, uh, into the, into the TV room and my 10 year old son is playing FIFA, which is the big video uh, game about mm -hmm. for soccer. And, you know, every single week he plays Real Madrid against Chelsea. <laughs> because he wants to see the two biggest teams in the world play against each right. other. Right. But I have no interest in watching a game he's playing on PlayStation. It's kind of like the Super League would all be a PlayStation. And I'm not sure the Super League would have worked with these teams having guaranteed presence in it every single year. Mm. I think for football fans, it's just the idea of... It's like of, an all-star league. Yeah. And that is where Major League Soccer, the American Soccer League, is widely derided around the world because it works on the American system of... of of league qualification for playoffs and then the MLS Cup rather than on promotion relegation. The relegation thing, I mean, that's survival of the fittest, really. Yeah. I mean, that's, Look, that's, I mean, a, that's the, up. that is the irony is that it's Europe that on the whole has a, has a free market sports universe and the United States has a socialist sports universe. You know, it's a, it's not a socialist sports universe, but you know what I mean? It's a closed, it's a, it, it's a, it, it's a closed shop. There's no access. There's no free market to it. of understand now i get it <laughs> okay good now i can make my harry potter reference so the so, so the tweet that i sent out i'm a chelsea fan i'm a passionate chelsea fan chelsea have been derided for so long because i think we were the first team bought by a billionaire um uh, roman abramovich when he bought the club and chelsea were a rather very fashionable but rather down on their luck premier league team before abramovich came in and suddenly we had it was so weird you 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 went from watching a, a, a kid you you 
you uh, followed growing up who started playing for the club in the under eights who was starting to suddenly we had our, an all-star team of the best players in the world. And Chelsea then started winning trophies, you know, because we had more money than everybody else. Um, Wait, and there's no um, and there's no no cap salary or anything. Cap. Okay, no, no, okay. there's no Got salary it. cap. There is, there is, um, and if there is a cap, it's in Bitcoin, you know, or right. NFTs. It's in some market that nobody understands. So, um, uh, so we went from winning, but on this, in this case, Chelsea were not the authors of the entire thing, and for a while on Tuesday, it appeared as though Chelsea were the first team to pull out. Um. And by pulling out, I think it may have been Manchester City, now that we know more, that were the first team to pull out. But Chelsea and Man City were the last teams to join. They were apparently reluctant, maybe along with Tottenham. And then Chelsea were the first people who, within the media, had been seen to pull out. And that's what started the collapse of the whole thing. Mm-hmm. To which um, I immediately, being a Chelsea homer, wanted to sort of uh, d- d- uh, absolve uh, responsibility from uh, Chelsea, decided that Chelsea had been the Severus Snape of the entire Super League <laughs> drama, that we had infiltrated, you know, the uh, the Death Eaters just in order to, um, just in order to bring it all down. Right. That was the biggest tweet I've sent in my life by about <laughs> 20x. It was just, it just, it just went huge. So. Amazing. Right. Um, yeah. Okay. But none of these billionaires, but here's the thing. None of these billionaires have resigned. You know, one unfortunate, well, not unfortunate, one widely loathed managing director, CEO of Manchester United was, you know, fell on his sword for the Glazer family. The owners have made, you know, a combination of zero statements or somewhat craven statements, um, regretting it and apologizing to their fans. But none of the owners have sold or stepped down. They're still going to rake in millions, even with the fines they'll pay or the... um, the sanctions they'll have or the lawsuits that will come from the from the super league we don't need to worry about them they're gonna they're gonna be okay on <laughs> their yachts and in their the yeah, yeah, yeah they will that they're, 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 they'll make it through but it's um, kind of interesting that it, it must feel like you know i know when when the nfl was going through all the blm stuff a yeah. couple years ago the fans a lot of people boycotted but it didn't matter like the nfl survived it and their ratings yeah. were up but it must feel kind of empowering to the fans in 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 the soccer it does and i think this is leading it's interesting you bring up blm because you know this obviously has been you know this is not an issue that is that is you know only um applicable to you know to the u.s or to or to u.s sports you know if you watch the premier league on a on a weekly basis you know a i'm not sure this majority but probably a good you know 40 to 50 percent of the players are uh are black um and they are, um, you know, racism in football has been a big issue, particularly directed from social media. Some of the things written on social media by, by fans, you know, we've seen it both domestically within Britain, but also particularly when you go across and these teams play teams from Eastern Europe and the racism that, that, that they encounter there. And I think a lot of people have asked the question, look, in 48 hours, fans, media, government, governing bodies, um, you know, we bought down the Super League. Now, could we act in the same way to get rid of racism in football? Mm. You know, there are there are a lot of other issues which I do think people, you know, this sort of united world realize that they have a, a tremendous, uh, a tremendous power to affect change. And I think there is going to be an enormous amount of pressure. There was already going to be pressure. I think there's now going to be even more pressure brought upon um, 
Facebook, Instagram, and mm. Twitter um, around, you know, regulating this wide dissemination of hate speech, you know, and I think that and directed towards Premier League players. Mm. I've always wondered about why it is that soccer teams often, not through their own intention often, um, and even mostly I would say, uh, act as vehicles for, for racism. Um, there, there's an old book uh, that I remember reading when I was much younger by actually a British journalist named Bill Buford uh, oh, yeah. called Among the Thugs. One of my you, favorite books of Yeah, you might well know it, yeah. right? So, so, and, and that's, of course, written before the age of social media. Um, and he's, you know, he follows a, along with uh, Man United supporters around, you know, go to Italy and so on. And they, they're there to basically get into scraps. And, and there's a lot of sort of racism built into the chants, anti-Semitism as well. And I'm wondering, um, how is that sort of undone you know there's, there's, there's sort of a those sort of things become verboten or or there's an education campaign i don't know what do you think well it's huge i mean just to take anti-semitism first not because it's any more abhorrent or any less abhorrent than any other form of 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 hate speech but there is a um you know the majority of jews in london live in north london and they happen to, um, over time, they've tended to gravitate towards Tottenham Hotspur is the team that they support. The Tottenham fans themselves, I'm not saying most of whom are Jewish, but massive numbers of them are Jewish, refer to their own team using an anti-Semitic slur. That's what they call their own team. Oh, my God. As do, so their chance for their own team are an anti-Semitic slur. Opposing teams you, and fans use that same anti-Semitic slur. I mean, it is just, it is, it is wrapped in, mm -hmm. it, is, it, is, it is just confusing and confounding. Um, players are now sort of questioning this, where all Premier League players, I think soccer players ha happens across Europe, they kneel, all of them, before the whistle blows at the beginning of the game. But it's a slightly, it's become a slightly strange sight because, of course, Colin Kaepernick knelt when everybody else was standing. So it was an act of protest. When everybody is kneeling and it appears, I don't know, it just appears somewhat like kneeling itself is a somewhat subservient gesture if, unless you're doing it as an act of protest when everybody else is standing. It just is a it just is, it's a little tone deaf. So, yes, there's a statement and there are banners all over every ground during it. But that's not the same as like direct action uh, to go and to go and prevent this. But how I think has the thing like, is, yeah, go ahead. How how has like you know in this country, the billionaire owners, particularly of the Washington football team, you know, yes. they don't even. It's like the the dumbest thing in the world. It's a it's a terrible name anyway. It's highly offensive. It's a name change. No one really cares about the history of the former Washington football team. Um, how is one, the ownership's response to this, but also is there a divide between the fans that are, you know, uh, um, screaming cancel culture and, you know, everybody's soft or snowflakey. Is, is that happen around the wanting to get rid of anti-Semitic chants? Um, you know, it's so funny. The ownership on the whole are not the, villains within 
within the the sort of the, the, the racism problems of football and the ownership actually these same hedge fund billionaires and oil barons have on the whole been pretty good it's more fifa and uefa mm. have had it's the governing bodies that have been a little bit more guilty and slow to react in taking some national federations you know in you know um for example in the former uh republics of, of yugoslavia uh from where we have many shared friends, Tony. Yes. They, it's some of these countries and their attitudes by their national federations and their, their ownership and their clubs has been abhorrent. Mm. And um, those governing bodies have been slow to act. I think on the whole, this has been much more about, and this is maybe why there's been, it's been more difficult to unite against it, because it is weeding out what is, without any doubt, a tiny minority of fans. Mm within yes. that culture and so okay. and so weeding out a tiny minority of fans is much harder than taking on established you know power structures you know it's about taking out the sort of you know the rank and file and i think this is where the the place of social media allowing those minority views which by the way at the beginning of social media was seen as a positive hey we're going to allow minority groups to go and really communicate with each right. other and like feel like part of something larger well, i think we all signed on to that and thought it was a pretty good idea until we realized who were the complete and other psychos who were going to sociopaths who were going to unite using these and use these tools and use these tools frankly better than anybody else other than good teenage way. girls so it's a um so i think that that that's become a large complicating issue um and uh, I think there's going to be a lot of change, and I think change and pressure on the Facebooks and um, Twitters and other social media um, platforms is going to come from Europe first before it happens in the US. Indeed, uh, I think there's going to be a lot of regulation that's going to happen over there that is going to force that's going to force change and then be and then be mimicked. I mean, look, the whole thing has been exhausted. I love football. I really love football. I think football is, you know, overall, I think it's a power for good. And I think I'd be remiss in not mentioning, you know, what has happened, the huge change that's happened in women's football over the last mm. 20 Indeed. years. You know, every single one of these Premier League teams, and this is, um, I think, when the owners were initially slow, they've actually moved really fast to, to build this, you know, um, you know, you know, women's programs, girls' programs, women's programs within these Premier League teams. And people are really starting to watch, you know, women's football on, women's club football on television. I think in the US, you've been used to this because the women have been, frankly, so much better than the men for so long. <laughs> um, uh, and I think we're now starting to see, um, but also I think there's a recognition that television rights are everything and, and the women's club game never, for various reasons, never really got the breaks it needed in terms of the TV rights, I think that's starting to happen. The Premier League is doing a very good job with that and women are getting represented. You see more women actually at Premier League games right now. It, it used to be, a, well not now during COVID, but when, when, when we return to you know, full stadia, a lot more women you know, go to the games and, and football is doing a much better job of, it's nowhere near there, but football certainly in Europe is, is from where it's been nowhere, is doing a much better job in terms of gender equity in football. Um, there's just a lot of work to still do. Um, and I, look, I hope, I hope the positive side of me, and I often say my nickname in college was Mike Positive Davis, and it's ultimately why I had to leave Britain because I am very optimistic and a positive person, and Britain wasn't really the country for that. That's why I was seen as being, you know, broken. Um, in fact, most people thought I was American long before I'd ever come to America. And um, 
my positive take on the Super League is that we can now use this power and the, the unification to go and, you know, make other changes and that the owners will realize that they're part of a global pyramid and the owners may do some good, you know, and they may understand that there there are other things that they can actually do and they certainly need they need the PR hit. They need to do something good at this point. What I worry about is a certain amount of the air has been let out of the balloon. You know, disbelief has been, you know, disbelief which was suspended. Um, we were all, you know, watching this play and believing it was magic and wonderful. Now we can't. Now, you know, the sort of that massive anvil has crashed down onto the stage and we realize that it's a, this is a play and there are some evil actors within it. And, you know, some of the air's gone out. And certainly my enjoyment in the last week maybe it's just temporary but my enjoyment of watching these clubs play football is sort of ugh, it feels yeah. it feels yeah. dirty mm-hmm. there's a massive game going on right now the carabao cup final it's a it's a it's a less important competition but two of these teams manchester city and tottenham are playing against each other and it's a huge game it's at wembley it's a game i would watch every single year i mean the irony is is these two teams were are playing in a competition to win a trophy which they would have completely sunk this competition um, by joining the Super League. Now right. they're competing to go and win it. It's very odd. There's no analogy. I can't even find a Potter analogy for that one. Um, <laughs> but I'm not even watching it. I'm talking to you guys. Right. I'm well, not. I feel so honored. This is my, this is my <laughs> thank, Super League. Thank you, Super League. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Okay, a couple quick rapid-fire questions, okay. and then we'll let you go. Um, NFL expanding into Europe. Kill this now or wait it out? Long play. Uh, do you know what? Listen to the fans. And that's both the domestic fans and the fans in London. Yes, I think British fans could support a team, certainly playing out of London. Uh, but is this good? Is this something that you want your, you know, is this good for the fans of Jacksonville, for example, <laughs> if that franchise gets moved out of Jacksonville and, no. and goes to London? Anything the NFL does, we could assume is not good for the fans. Yeah. Uh, U.S. men's World Cup soccer team ever going to be on the level of the women and maybe win one or even I say all the time, uh, one, uh, if there were a middle class World Cup, uh, America would make the final pretty much every time because we have some of the best middle class football players in the world. (laughs) Unfortunately, when set against the working classes of every other country in the world, it's tough. (laughs) You know, but we're really good at middle class football. Amazing at it. Um, uh, so uh, I don't know. However, the World Cup is not the best football in the world. You know, the best football in the world is the clubs. These but, these are like just representative teams. These are like dream teams that come together. But it and, feels so good. And 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 play against each other. The World Cup is so fun as a it's drinking so event. It's, so it's a fun. drinking event. But yeah. it's um it's not the best football. It's single elimination. It happens in weird countries. The next World Cup, I'm not sure if you're aware of this, Tony, is in Qatar. Qatar I won the right to the World Cup. In fact, part of the uh, this was won with 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 lots of cash, stuff, and envelopes given away in the uh, FIFA headquarters in Lausanne or Gstaad or Zurich or wherever it meets. It has massive offices in all of those places. Um, and uh, the whole World Cup bid, which is World Cup is played over the summer. The summer in Qatar, Brilliant. not sure you're aware of it, mm-hmm. quite warm. And part of the bid was they were going to build clouds that were going to make it rain and make it cold <laughs> using obviously all of the cloud building technology that is huge right. in the Middle East because they do a really good job of keeping temperatures cool as a cloud. The uh, guys, because there was enough cash in the envelopes, they, they, they bought it. Then they had to move the World Cup to the winter but the biggest tragedy is in Qatar where they're building all these stadia, they're building all these hotels for it to be. 
the human rights implications, I mean, if any of your yeah. listeners want to read about it, it's just been abhorrent, the number of foreign workers who've died in building this place. Literally, football has blood on its hands in this World Cup. And I don't know that, I think increasingly there's a move amongst players to say, this is wrong. Mm. And the first victim of the entire Super League drama could be actually the the boycott of that World Cup. Wow. And you would probably be going to that. I would have been. I I decided long ago that I wouldn't. And um, I don't think that, uh, I think based on the human rights abuses, I don't think I could wow. watch a ball being kicked at that World Cup. So, but look, back to the question. I think the U.S. ultimately, the U.S. is, you know, just based on the size of population. If we could get the working classes of this country playing soccer, um, I don't think, that I'm not an A, um, I, this won't surprise you, I'm not an American exceptionalist. Right. I don't believe that America naturally is going to be the best in the world, which, you know, there have been a lot of American sports commentators who should know better to ally okay. themselves with this, with these claims of exceptionalism, um, because their politics don't speak to the foundation of American exceptionalism anywhere else, who say, yeah, the second our best athletes start playing this sport will be the best in the world. No, you won't be. You'll be... Um, you'll be competing with the best in the world. Right. You will be as good as, you, you're not better. Hence, we've seen as, as basketballers travel around the world, what happens every single year, more and more European and, and international players play in that league. Yeah. Um, so, um, but America, if we got, you know, if we really harness the power of our Spanish speaking population and mm. of our inner cities into football, and it's starting to happen, and also our immigrant population. Right. You know, many of these great signings in the US men's national program are either recent immigrants or, often the case, people who really had very little idea they were American or eligible for American passports <laughs> until they got a call from the U.S. Soccer Federation. So, um, uh, but that that's given us some tremendous uh, players playing for the team. You know, there's a guy called Serginio Dest. You know, for years we've told, oh, it's uh, you know, it's you know, Pulisic is going to be the guest next guy, or Freddie Adu is going to be the best in the world. Right, you know, Adu. there's yeah. a young guy playing for the U.S. right now named Serginio Dest. Plays as a, uh, he plays as a right back for his club Barcelona. Pretty good, pretty well known. Plays as a left back for the U.S. because the U.S. have a have a have a bigger need in that place. But he is sort of phenomenal. Got a new midfielder, you know, uh, uh, Musa, who is just a tremendous, tremendous player. We're seeing the the emergence, you know, George Weah's uh, son, you know, the former um, Liberian and uh, soccer player and Liberian president, I believe, his son. Um, is uh, is playing for the U.S. right now, who's just just awesome. Uh, Claudio Reyna's son, Gio Reyna. Claudio Reyna was one of the great U.S. players in the um, early 2000s. He's uh, 90s and 2000s. His son is playing for um, the program now. So there are a bunch of very, very good young American players coming up, which is Phenomenal. good for the game. And uh, last, last request. Go ahead and assign Ahmet and I as Eagles fans a soccer team, and we're going to become fans. You just, and, and I'll tell my children one day I became a fan because Michael <laughs> Davies told me, and I'm, and I'm going to watch. Do you know, I, uh, Tony, I'm going to give you no choice. You're my friend. You've been my friend for a long time. Um, uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to bring you to my beloved Chelsea uh, because, frankly, wonderful. you know, the Davis family still have season tickets. I want you to Great. come with me. You and I have attended sporting <laughs> events before. Yes, um, we have. Mainly the ball riding. Madison <laughs> <laughs> Square Garden. We enjoy sport. Um, and also, I will give you a slightly deeper connection. The great Italian history of Chelsea Football Club. 
you know, Gianfranco Zola, uh, oh. Gianluca Viali. We've had uh, managers Antonio Conte. We've had great Italian players and managers, a great Italian tradition. We even had an English goalkeeper, Peter Bonetti, the cat, uh, within a, who, is, who is English and Italian. We, have, we are the most Italian team in English football. You s- You'll salt. enjoy West London. You're there. <laughs> Bianca Sino, you look good in blue. Blue is a good color yes, for is. you. Yeah. Um, so I'm taking you there. Uh, Amit, um, you know, it's interesting. I sort of sense with your, with your sense of history with your, you know, my guess is slightly, slightly um, uh, European red-colored politics, not American red-colored politics, but European red-colored mm-hmm. politics. But your sense of history, it has to be Liverpool Football Club. Liverpool Football Club do believe that they're the only club in football with history. They actually <laughs> sing to other people, you ain't got no history. That's actually what they chant at Chelsea because Perfect. we were only founded in 1905. <laughs> right. um, and so, uh, as opposed to the 19th century. And so... I'm going to sign you to Liverpool Football Club. You're a red. I think you'll enjoy, it's despite perfect. the awful behavior of their of, of their hedge fund billionaire owners. Right. You know, I could, if you want, you can take Sheffield United, who are just relegated, but they may not be in business uh, yeah, right. in a couple no, of years. I don't want to relegate. So I, I like yeah. the idea of, of you taking Liverpool. I think that would be good. I have cousins in Liverpool, so this is perfect. Good. Yeah. Okay. Excellent. Yeah. Excellent. Well, Michael, thank you very much. Uh, we needed that because I don't want to. I don't want to live in a world where I don't understand the uh, beginning and end of the Super League. Um, yeah, it's a forty-eight a hour history. history. Yeah, 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 exactly. exactly. <laughs> That's a great history. Incredible class. forty-eight hour history of the Super League. Oh, it was fun. <laughs> One thing that Roger and I, my partner on Men in Blazers, um, you know, we really decried is we really wanted to see the branding. We wanted to hear the theme song. Football has some great theme songs. You know, the Super, the Champions League has this amazing piece of 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 choral music the champions that is just so good that sort of plays over the Heineken ad we were just really wanted to know if they'd written the Super League theme where it was in its demo stage we wanted to sort of hear that whether or not it had been like Coldplay had been uh, or you know or whether it was going to be you know which band sold themselves out to write the Super League theme that was a really we were we were very interested in that um, in, in that conversation the Black Eyed Peas, I think, ended up winning our poll. <laughs> yeah, probably. I could see them doing it. They'll, 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 yeah. they'll, they'll sing for yeah. anybody. Yeah, could have been um, Pitbull. Could have been Pitbull, but most likely the Black Eyed Peas. Uh, Michael's uh, podcast is Men and Blazers, a phenomenal podcast, one of the great podcasts. Uh, and you don't really need to be a soccer fan to enjoy your show. Um, no, it's mostly about poetry. It's mostly about poetry. <laughs> um, and you guys have a pretty pretty beautiful book out um yeah the encyclopedia blazer tanica um uh that it was a couple of years now but it's still 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 selling still available it's a great bookstores uh everywhere that's interesting we talk about a lot of nonsense in in uh in 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 that book and some serious things but mostly nonsense um but yeah men and blazers if you're interested in you know we uh if if you have any if you are uh football curious if you are soccer curious um and can abide the opinions of uh, of two bald Englishmen, um, uh, then you know take You're a listen where you listen to podcasts. Great, Michael. Okay. Thanks, man. Thank you so much. Appreciate Thank it, guys. You. Talk to you Bye. soon. Bye.
I feel like that was a good. I mean, Michael, yeah. that was a crash course. I actually can go have well, a conversation this, about this. That was this. interesting. You know, there's always the history of the thing that, that tells you the most, right? Is that I had no idea that there's kind of like these grassroots origins to these various soccer clubs, you know, that, that they're yeah. so sort of yeah. grassroots-ish, and um, which is completely different from American-style professional teams, right? Which are, which are completely yes. top-down and... Um, so I could that that helps me understand the fanaticism of the fans over there. Right? You know, like like they are so yeah. wedded to it's it's, it's their town. It's it's like it's literally, life, dude. Um, so I I it's beyond anything actually I've I've ever seen in in the U.S. Um, you know, I mean, we don't there's, you know, there's people who get you know tattoos and stuff of, of their you know fan and uh, team insignia and stuff like that but this is it's like next level people organize their entire vacations around following these teams. i mean it's like the only thing i can think about it, it's it's actually like kind of like deadheads remember like people who followed around the grateful dead and lived then organized their entire life and identity around that it's like that except times 10. well it's like dead well, it's like deadheads, <laughs> right, but violent. Right. Without the weed, yeah. Take away the weed, fill yeah. them up with whiskey right. and beer, and yeah. Yeah. watch out. Uh, I don't know. I mean, something hearing him talk about the way the fan, like people who hate each other, came together. It's like what we always say on this podcast: when the working class people finally start to get together yeah. with their views and like realize that in that in this analogy. Of those billionaires, the Super League, that are the those are the billionaires and the political machine in this country that yeah. ruin everything. And man, if we could just learn something from what we just saw, it's the power of a group of working class people getting together in forty eight hours ended. He just named six or seven of the richest people in the universe and a bunch of working class fans took their ass down yeah. in 48 yeah. hours. I feel like there was a God. guy in the 19th century named Carl who talked about this. Uh, <laughs> Carl with a C. Carl with a K. Uh, <laughs> Carl. He's a, a salesman, uh, I believe. So I, I, um, I don't know. I'm, I'm, I'm actually shocked that this whole thing fell apart. Uh, because it's so rare that this happens, right? Is that people will say, oh my God, I can't believe this is happening. And then it just happens. And that this was dismantled, which is awesome. Well, you're a Liverpool fan yeah, now. And yeah, yeah. Next time, when it comes you to know, soccer, we have, we're going to have to get jerseys from now on. I was hoping you put me in the Chelsea one because that's, I mean, I've, I've only really heard of Chelsea. Manchester, Liverpool, Man United. Everybody's Manchester, heard of Man United. Yeah. Man United, yeah. Yeah. All well, right. I'm All a right. Chelsea fan now, guys. Uh, Check out their podcast, Men of Blazers. It's great. And um, yeah, yeah that was fun. As always, No Politics at the Dinner Table is produced by Amit Prakash um, with tunes by G. Baderoy. Check out our website. Uh, we'll put the Men of Blazers book on there. Uh, it's actually a really great book. It's a great book for a gift. If anyone's even kind of into soccer, get them the book. Um, and we will uh, we'll see you next week. Mm-hmm.